Welcome to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. A former dump site at the edge of the Pacific Ocean in Fort Bragg, California, is part of the story in this edition of Radio Curious. Captain Cass Farrington, creator and owner of the Glass Beach Museum, is the author of Beaches of Glass, a history and tour of the glass beaches of Fort Bragg, California. He's our guest. He is also a master mariner, holder of an unlimited master's certificate, allowing him to be the captain of any size seagoing vessel. And he has many stories to tell. Captain Cass and I sat on Glass Beach Number 2 in Fort Bragg on a windy afternoon, June 2, 2012, with the waves lapping 10 feet away. We began when I asked him to describe Glass Beach, but keep listening to hear his story about when he put his hands in acid 40 years ago. His website is C-A-P-T-C-A-S-S dot com. Fort Bragg has three old dump sites. Uh, the reason we have so much glass here is that nothing ever washes away. Uh, the rock formations in Fort Bragg set up wave patterns to keep everything on the beach. And because of this, their dump site filled and they had to move it and it filled again and they had to move it. So we have three old dump sites. We call them Site 1, Site 2, and Site 3. Site 3 is best known as Glass Beach. But it now has the least glass of all the three sites. You chose uh, Glass Beach number two for us to visit where we are now. Why? Well, it has the most glass. It's, it's the nicest beach you can get to by foot. Site one is only accessible by water, and Glass Beach at Site three is mostly depleted of the larger pieces. It's just small rough pieces down there now. We're sitting here on broken glass. Tell us about it. How long it's been here, the origins, well, like I say, this was a dump site. All water communities used to have water dumps, whether you lived on a river, a lake, the ocean, the bay. It made sense in the old days for our ancestors to dump everything in the water so it washed away. And in Fort Bragg, they didn't realize that nothing ever washed away, but they were doing the same thing as everybody else. So the, at Fort Bragg, it began in 1906 with the 1906 earthquake. Uh, that destroyed the center of town, and they bulldozed all that rubble into the ocean at Site 1 and they started using that as a dump site. And when that filled in 1940, uh, 1943, they moved it to this site where they were sitting in. This is the 43 to 49 dump site. And then when it filled, they moved it to Glass Beach, which is the 49 to 67 dump site. And all this glass is what remains of the dump sites. Now everything in Fort Bragg that was not biodegradable got recycled back off the beach. It was taken off by lumberjacks and fishermen who were off in the winter, sold for scrap. It was used in artwork by artists. And now what we have left is just the glass. That was collected between 69 and about 65 years ago. 43 to 47. 43 to 49 on this site. What's special about what we're sitting on? Well, sea glass, there's a long history to sea glass. I had a little old lady come in the museum one day and she said when I was a little girl I collected sea glass with my grandmother who collected sea glass with her grandmother when she was a little girl on the beaches of Maine. 
And there's a novel written back in the 30s or 40s. It's named Sea Glass. It's not about sea glass, but it has sea glass interwoven through it. Sea glass is what Mother Nature does with our refuse. This was when at one time it was all broken, sharp glass, broken pieces of everything that people used. But over time, the ocean tumbles it, softens it, rounds it, and smooths it into gemstones. And the pitting in the surface is from the glass dissolving in the salt water. That's something it doesn't do in fresh water, not so readily. It takes a lot longer because the pH is different. But in salt water, glass and pottery dissolves fairly readily. And when it does that, it releases the minerals used to color the glass. And that's created a fantastic underwater garden in Fort Bragg, which is now much healthier in the marine environment than the surrounding area. Can you describe for us what is in the underwater garden and the difference, what makes it more healthy? Well, it's, it, glass and pottery are colored or clarified with minerals. Each color comes from a different mineral, and even clear glass is clarified with either selenium or magnesium. And glass is made with soda and lime, and of course silica, sand. And as the glass dissolves in the salt water, it releases all those minerals, and that's the basis of the food chain. So just like life flourishes around underwater thermal vents where minerals are erupting up through the Earth's crust, here life is flourishing off the minerals that are seeping off our beaches. We have 48 variety of chitin in Fort Bragg. Those are snails that live on the rocks. That's more than anywhere else in California. And the other species are all more plentiful and healthy as well because of the glass and pottery shards. And then on the beach where it's heavy like it is here, when you dig down, especially in the wetter areas, you find little shrimps, worms, isopods, and insects that also reinforce the food chain. And microfauna and microflora we can't even see thrive between the glass. So what you're describing then is glass that's uh, about 50 feet away from us underwater. No. This glass The glass here. that we're sitting on. It, right. And down below, we'll say where the weed is, where the sand is still wet. If you dig down in there, you'll see a, a plethora of little shrimps and worms and isopods. All kinds of life inhabit this beach. Now, the north end of Glass Beach, Site 3, used to look like this. And now it's just sand. So we've lost all those populations of critters up there through the depletion of the sea glass. What happened to the glass on Site 3, that it's only sand now? It was all recycled. People picked it up, used it for this or that. That's what's going on. Everybody comes here to collect the glass. They don't come to look at it. Everybody's hoping to find their special treasure for their special project or just to keep in a jar in the window or to play with. You know, it's soothing. Do you anticipate uh, what happened at Site 3 will occur here at Site 2? Looks like there's quite a bit of glass. What would you guesstimate, 100, 150 square yards? I have no idea. This is a very deep beach, and this glass goes down deep. I've never seen the bottom of this beach, so how much is actually on this beach, I couldn't estimate. But it'll eventually all be depleted unless there's a replenishment program undertaken. When the coastal trail opens, the northern section, which is supposed to open in the fall of 2013, a little more than a year from now, when that coastal trail opens, this beach and Site 1 will be accessible to the general public by foot. And that's going to accelerate the depletion here a lot. We already have a lot of sea glass enthusiasts flocking to Fort Bragg to collect their sea glass. Sea glass artists from around the country come here, sea glass jewelers from the East Coast. From all over the world, people are coming here to collect a piece of glass. I noticed that when we walked in to the beach here, 
uh, there was a sign that said, don't pick up pieces of glass. And you said, that was put up yesterday and nobody pays attention. That was put up on Friday by the park rangers. The, the park rangers are citing a resource code that says you can't take anything of historical or archaeological value from a park. Now, whether or not sea glass fits that is questionable, but they're concerned about the depletion, and rightfully so, because glass beach used to be like this beach, and it's not anymore. But it's rather like closing the barn door after the horses run out, you know, it's, it's too late. Glass beach can only be replenished, just they're not going to be able to salvage anything. Um, so they put those signs up on Friday uh, to tell people do not collect the glass, and that's within the park area. And there are several problems with all of this because the park ends at the mean high water mark, as does the city. That's Article 10 of the state constitution. So right now it's low water halfway down this beach. That, that tide mark running right past here, that's not city. That's open sea. That belongs to the people. Can you tell us a little bit about your background that led you to be the historian, the glass beach curator, if you will? I fell into this completely by accident. I had a friend who was disabled, and she'd gotten out of the hospital, and I was taking her on walks to get her strength back up. I hadn't been down here in 20 years, I don't think. And we were sitting on the beach one day, and I was looking at the glass, and I said, this is pretty. Somebody should do something with it. And on the way out, there was a Native American girl selling some jewelry along the path. And I asked her, I said, can you do anything with the glass? Do you do anything with it? She says, no, I don't do anything with the glass. So I decided to try it. And it took right off, you know, and I thought it was just a local phenomenon. I was surprised at the number of tourists coming down to the glass beach. Uh, and about three weeks into it, a little girl walked by and said, oh, look, Mommy, sea glass. Well, that's the first time I'd heard that phrase. I went home, looked it up on the Internet, and I was blown away. There's a whole industry out there of sea glass. And uh, really, when I started it, I'm on a pension. I'm a retired sea captain. I'm on a pension. And I had two girls in college at the time, and they were keeping me tapped out. And really, I just want a little money to go play golf. So when you say uh, you first started doing it, that's making jewelry out of the sea glass. Right, making jewelry out of it. And I haven't played golf since I started doing it. <laughs> Cass, you have a handful of sea glass, some rocks, but mostly glass. What, what do you look for when you're making the jewelry that you make? When I collect, I discriminate a lot. I'm looking for size, shape, and color. Mostly color. I'm looking for anything with good color in it. And then the size and the shape determine how I price it. I don't take anything that's dinged or nicked. And the city, really, because no matter what they do, they can't stop the picking down here. There should be educational materials for the tourists, explaining to them that if a piece of glass is chipped or has a shiny spot on it, it should be left on the beach. It's not cooked yet. In sea glass world, it's called cooked. By cooked, what do you mean? I mean, it's, it's, it has no chips or dings. It's perfectly smooth all the way around and has a nice frosting on it. Let's go back even farther. You were a uh, sea captain. They call you Captain Cass Farrington. That's right. Tell us about your uh, captaincy. Well, I was a captain of merchant ships sailing all over the world. I've been in over 50 countries on every coast of every continent. I've sailed up the Congo, I've lived with the Amazon Indians, I've been 600 miles from the North Pole. I've spent my life seeing this beautiful world. And by captain, you're the person in charge of the ship. That's right, master. Mm -hmm. 
The last 14 years of my career, I was master. The last ship was 900 feet long, 100 feet wide, as big as an aircraft carrier. And I carried 38,000 tons of ammunition, which was one month's supply for one division of Marines in the Persian Gulf. What year was that? That was in 1997, was the last I sailed. Do you have any um, concerns or reflections about carrying the ammunition? Your thoughts on that? No, ammunition really is a very safe cargo. It's much safer than, say, an empty tanker, which is all fumes and ready to go with a spark. Uh, ammunition is basically fertilizer. Actually, I was thinking more of the end result of what would happen to the ammunition than the safety of the portability. No, no, no I don't consider those things. I just do the job. Okay. In this edition of Radio Curious, we're visiting with Cass Farrington, a uh, sea captain of how many years, Cass? Well, I was 27 years at sea, 14 as captain. And now he's the owner of the Sea Glass Museum, also here in Fort Bragg. This is Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Cass, tell us about the museum. Well, you know, I, when my collection started getting very nice, I really wanted to do a museum. And I was fortunate enough to end up at Chris Burns' place down there. You met Chris today. I only had a small room in there, just that front room, the, the front room of the gallery was where I moved into, and I just had my jewelry. And Chris and his gal Friday, whoever it is at the time, they tend the shop when I'm out collecting on the beach. And one day a woman came in and told Chris, this looks like a museum. And when he told me that, I told him, I actually want to do a museum. So he said, well, that's great. And he cleared out another room for me. That was his personal office. And I put the museum in there in January of 2009. And it was such a hit that the next year we cleared out a whole other section of his place there. And we expanded the museum, doubled its size. Uh, and this year we've expanded again into another room, a terracotta room. And now I'm going to expand yet into another room that he's clearing out. Uh, it's, it's just quite a project. It's a lot of fun, and everybody loves it. It's just beautiful, you know. It's... Let's go back and see what your ideas may be about having the uh, glass from the communities of Mendocino County tumble, getting rid of the sharp edges, and brought here uh, to replenish the glass beach. Well, I think it's the only solution. Right now, our glass is being trucked out of here at tremendous expense to a landfill far away. Its environmental cost is high, the economic cost is high. There are four other places now putting glass on their beaches because of Fort Bragg. Fort Lauderdale was the first. They were having a problem with erosion of their beaches, and they were pumping sand from offshore to replenish the sand on the beaches, and they ran out of sand offshore. So they went to the scientists, and the scientists said, well, put glass on the beach, and they got the idea from Fort Bragg. Now there, they're putting on small, clear pieces called cullet, which are very small pieces of glass or very, very large pieces of sand. But they found the environmental benefits were good there, providing habitat for little creatures and for nesting sea turtles, and it solved their problem. It's cheaper than a landfill, they found. It's a more efficient way of recycling glass. And since they done it, did it, New Jersey has done it, Curacao has done it, and New Zealand has done it. So there are already four other places imitating Fort Bragg, while Fort Bragg is still having the debate whether or not it's a good way to recycle their glass. Is that debate going on in the bars or the city council chambers? In the city council chambers. What I'm trying to do is educate the population of the city 
about what they have here of its importance to the marine environment and the necessity to keep it going. And once that's done, I believe we can get the City Council to act. Cass Farrington, I appreciate you being with us on Radio Curious and taking... Sounds like there's a friend of yours. He's on cue. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'd like to ask more about you personally and uh, about a eureka moment or an aha moment in your life that uh, stays with you. Well, when I was 22, after I graduated the academy, I'm a graduate of the United States Merchant Marine Academy, I got a job working overseas in Southeast Asia running oil boats to the oil fields. And while I was working out of Jakarta, Indonesia, I learned to wash my hands in acid under a Muslim hajj. Well, he taught me the power of faith. Uh, and because of that, the rest of my life, as I traveled all over the world, I studied all the great religions, trying to find a way to build that faith and hold that faith, because it makes for a miraculous world. Can you tell us what you have found, what works in building and holding for you? I did. At the core of each great faith, there's a simple instruction that the founder of the faith gave. They were simple people, most of them, and they said all you have to do is love your Creator and indulge your Holy Spirit. And that's what they said to do, and that's what I did. As I practiced, I went within, and I, I felt what was there. I came to know myself better, my greater self better, and I learned to ask for things. And then I saw I got them, and that's the process. Once you start, you can't stop, and you end up just loving this wonderful creator that's creating all of us and living here through us, and the gulls and all the plants and everything else. It's just, it was a, a real turning point in my life because before that I was very atheistic. I was studying uh, metaphysical things and telepathy and things like that. And believe it or not, they fit in to all of this somehow. Uh, but that was really what set me off on that journey. Cass, what do you mean, wash your hands in acid? In Indonesia, Islam is intertwined with a lot of spiritualism and mysticism and a lot of body control, things like that. And I was fortunate enough to meet an individual, a waiter in a restaurant that I frequented, who had a friend who was taking body control lessons from a Muslim Hajj. Over there they call him a Hajj. I don't know if that's because he made the Hajira or what, but that's what they call him. And it was through that that I met my teacher who taught me to wash my hands in acid. And that gave me the, the will to the desire to build a foundation in faith through my life because I learned the difference between faith and doubt. And the way I did that was that the night I washed my hands in acid successfully, the teacher told me when I was leaving, he said, I can do it any time I want now, but I cannot show just the curious, only true seekers. And the next morning when I awoke and I went over to the bamboo restaurant to have lunch, Tan, the waiter who had introduced me to his friend who was a student of the Hajj, had 20 people there waiting for me to see me wash my hands in acid. And I didn't want Tan to lose face, and I still had this doubt in my mind, but I didn't want him to lose face, and I didn't want to lose face, so I agreed to do it. And they brought me out the bowl, we had a ceramic bowl and a bottle of the acid, but that was exactly, I don't know still, and a spoon. And I took off my rings and I poured the acid in the bowl, and I put the spoon in the bowl and it started foaming and frothing and melting away. And then I took my hands and I put them into liquid fire. It burned and it burned. And I took them back out again and smiled at everybody because I wanted to think I didn't hurt myself. 
<laughs> there was an outdoor fountain, so I ran over there and I rinsed my hands off, and it didn't help. My hands were on fire all day, all night. The next day they turned brown and I lost about four layers of skin. And that taught me the difference between doubt and faith. I had faith when I did it with the Hajj. I saw his seven-year-old son do it. So I had the faith to do it. And the next morning, because he said, don't show the curious, I had doubt. And that subtle difference was enough between putting my hands in water and putting my hands in liquid fire. The first time you did it was water. No, no, it, felt, it just felt like water, but it wasn't water, it was the acid. When I went there, see what happened was, the first time I met the teacher, Tan took me up there with his buddy. We, we drove all the way to, through Jakarta to get to this gas station where his pal worked as a gas attendant. And his buddy went and got a bottle of the acid. They had a 55-gallon drum on the ground, a cover. And he poured the acid in that. He picked up scraps of metal from around and threw them in, and they all started dissolving and foaming away. Then he put his hands in it and took them back out and asked if I wanted to learn that. Atan was my interpreter. I don't speak Indonesian, so Tan was the interpreter for all this. And I said, sure. So we got car, he got off of work. We got up the car, head up through the hills of Jakarta some more of another hour or so. And around midnight, we got to the Haj's house. He was out praying at somebody's bedside. So we waited a little while, he came back. They explained to him what I wanted to do. So he called over his seven-year-old son, and he had a safety pin that was about an inch and a half or two inches long. And he took it and he straightened it out and he took his son's arm and he laid the pin against his arm and he drove the pin through his arm, wiggled it around, pulled it back out, wiped off a drop of blood. And then he said to me, he says, now you. Well, I just seen a kid do it. <laughs> so I held out my arm. He said, just relax, you know, and he put the pin against it, drove it through my arm, wiggled it around, pulled it out. There's no pain. And he wiped off the blood. He says, I'll teach you. So then he gave me a prayer in Arabic to say, it saved my life later in Turkey. I had to get up the following Wednesday morning at four in the morning. I had to repeat this prayer a thousand times. I had to fast all day. No water, no food, no cigarettes, no sex, nothing. Just repeat this prayer a thousand times. And I did. And then go back at midnight. So I went back and when we went in, it wasn't just my teacher. I was, you know, an infidel. To them, this was really unusual that I would come along and want to do this. So my teacher's teacher was there. He was the one who could walk on water. And all my teacher's students were there, about eight guys in this little room all crammed in to watch me do this. And what they did, they brought me a, his wife brought out a bowl of white rice. I was allowed one bite to break my fast. Then she brought out a little tray of teas. There were about six different teas, and I was allowed one sip of each tea. And then he brought out the bowl, and he brought out the spoon, and he brought out the acid. And my teacher went, and he did. He, showed the spoon, melted away, put his hands in the bowl, pulled it back out. And then he had his seven-year-old son do it. And after his son did it, he says, now you. Well, of course, I'd just seen him. I saw the kid. I'd go fasting. So I did it. And it was just like putting your hand in water. There's nothing there. But when I pulled them out, my teacher's teacher and my teacher each grabbed a hand. And they're looking at it, flipping it back and forth. They're looking in my eyes to see if my pupils are dilated or constricted with pain. And everybody's just all, blah, 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 blah. everybody's just gabbing. You know? <laughs> so, then the old man, he reaches up on the wall. The house was lit with little kerosene lamps. And he took off a chimney off one of the lamps and he wrapped it in his hanky and he smashed it on the table. And he opened it up, he took a piece of glass and started to chew it. 
And then my teacher took a piece of glass, started to chew it. And they chewed it all up, they rinsed their mouths out, spit it out. And the old man said, now you. Well, I just seen them do it. So I took a piece carefully, you know, put it in, chewed it all up. They said, don't swallow it. And I didn't swallow it, you know, I rinsed it out, spit it out. As soon as I did, I was having a dental exam. They were both in my mouth, <laughs> looking inside to see if I was cut or, you know, in any way hurt by the glass. And I wasn't, you know, so they were all pretty much amazed by it all. It was a lot of fun. <laughs> and you were 22 years old. Mm -hmm. And then when I was 24, I had an epiphany. I had a moment of clarity where all the things that I had studied came together and I realized that we were living in a quantum field and that the Creator was there harmonizing it and creating it for us as we lived in it. That changed my whole life. After that, I just wanted to know why. You know, why is marriage important? Why this? Why that? But the answers always come if you just ask. People just don't remember to ask. Well, before you were told not to tell the curious, this is Radio Curious. The question is why? I believe that the curious, that their doubt, see, we're in a quantum field and we're all tied together. We're really all one. We appear separate, but we're one being, basically. And I think that the doubt of the curious can impact what happens, what comes out of it. And I also believe that they don't want it to be a sideshow. To them, it's a special thing. It's a spiritual power. To the Muslims who taught me, to the, you know, the Hajj. And they don't want it to be a sideshow. They don't do it on the street to get money. You know, it's, it's something that's just done to a true seeker who's trying to improve himself spiritually and enter the, the world of light. What would you like to do with the rest of your one precious life? Well, I'm thinking of moving up to be with my daughters. They're in Arcata which means in a few years I'll sell the museum. I'd like it to sell locally and stay locally because it's a local treasure. So that's what I'm going to try to do. Uh, and then I'll move up to Arcata to be with my girls and I'm going to start a candy company. What kind of candy? I can't tell you, it's a secret. I don't want to tell people what the flavors are because it's an unusual mix and I don't want to give somebody else the idea. <laughs> All right, all right. I hope you can get a uh, design patent for your recipe. That's what I have to do first, right. And finally, Cass Farrington, is there a book that you could recommend to our listeners? Yeah. I love the Ray Kurzweil's latest book, which is The Singularity is Near. That explains why, say, if you're under 50 years old, you probably have a life expectancy of 600. He's one of our preeminent futurist scientists. He advises Congress and the president on where we're going and what's happening with science. And to go with that, I would recommend a movie, too, What the Bleep We Know. That's quantum physicists explaining what we know about quantum physics in, in a very entertaining, easy to understand way that you know explains the quantum field and why, like I said, having faith is so important in materializing things for ourselves. Captain Cass Farrington is the author of Beaches of Glass, a history and tour of the glass beaches of Fort Bragg, California. He's also the creator and owner of the Glass Beach Museum, also in Fort Bragg. His website is captcass.com. The book that Captain Cass Farrington recommends is The Singularity is Near When Humans Transcend Biology by Ray Kurzweil. He also recommends the movie What the Bleep Do We Know? 
All editions of Radio Curious are free for anyone, anywhere to listen, download, and enjoy. There are about 400 archive editions on our website, radiocurious.org. You may subscribe to our podcast at our website. Our email is curious at radiocurious.org, and the phone is 707-462-6541. Our mailing address is 280 North Oak Street in Ukiah, U-K-I-A-H, California, 95482. Christina Anastat is our assistant producer. Janet Mendel, a Radio Curious assistant producer, participated in the development of this program. Stay curious, be creative, and join us again next week. I'm host and producer Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.